This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Friday, February 9th. A landmark ruling for Indigenous people. Canada's Supreme Court upholds a federal law that gives them jurisdiction over child welfare. Reaction is just ahead. Plus, after a year of talks, Ontario and the federal government reach a deal unlocking billions for health care. Could this be a turning point in Ontario's health care crisis? And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau calls the Bell Media job cuts a garbage decision. The Friday Power Panel weighs in on that public lashing. We begin with the Supreme Court declaring the federal Indigenous child welfare law constitutional. This comes after the Quebec government opposed and appealed the law. Bill C-92 gives Indigenous peoples the jurisdiction over child and family services, and Indigenous leaders are calling it a historic day. This ruling reiterates the message that we have been emphasizing for years, that First Nations, Inuit and Métis are best placed to ensure the wellness of our own populations. We have the capacity as Indigenous governments to have a full authority over everything that pertains to our uh, reality. Patty Haidu is the Minister of Indigenous Services, and she joins me now. Minister, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you, David. Obviously, you're quite pleased with this decision. What do you think this means uh, for, for your reconciliation agenda as a government and relationship with um, the communities affected by this? Well, I mean, I was just uh, actually doing uh, some press with uh, President Obed and President Karen, uh, respectively, of the ITK and uh, Métis Nation. And uh, both of them expressed, uh, first of all, a, a true appreciation of the ruling. Uh, but they also said, and they quoted a part of the ruling that specifically talked about how this is legislative reconciliation. Probably a new term for us, but uh, I think an important one, because uh, what uh, I think both partners said was that they felt that the court affirmed what they've always known, that they do have inherent right over children and families in, um, in their communities, and that right has... Um, it many times been uh, uh, extinguished or attempted to be extinguished, but the affirmation by the Supreme Court that uh, First Nations, uh, Inuit, and Métis people have the right to the care and control of their own children and families is a huge relief. An important issue, an important judgment, but it's an issue, Minister, where progress has been a little bit slow, right? Since it came into effect in January 2020, only seven Indigenous governing bodies have actually signed a deal to gain their control over child and family services. Why is that been at this pace? What do you need to do to speed it up? Well, I think this ruling will actually help uh, communities that have been reluctant to come forward watching uh, the appeals of provinces and, and, and in particular, uh, you know, the province of Quebec, worrying that the constitutionality of the federal law would be jeopardized. These are enormous, uh, huge lifts for communities. It usually takes about 18 to 24 months to uh, develop their own custom code of care, uh, sometimes using law that existed way before contact or elements of that law. There's also the uh, the fairly substantial work of standing up an organization or an agency that's going to do that work in the First Nations and all the HR implications. And finally, there's a coordination of, of the funding that uh, needs to be in place for the success to be truly uh, ascertained. And so uh, now I think we'll start to see more communities come forward. We have a number that are nearly concluded, and, and I'm, I'm thinking this will certainly accelerate that work as well. 
now that this is done and settled by the Supreme Court uh, and, and you can start moving at implementing it at scale, how do you suspect that this will change the lives of, of indigenous children who, who, who need intervention but don't want to be taken uh, from their community and culture? You know, I've had the opportunity, David, to be at some of the signings of the coordination agreements that are in place, and they're truly some of the most moving ceremonies and events that I've ever had the privilege to attend. There is a lot of grieving and a lot of celebrating simultaneously. People are grieving for the generations of children that have been disrupted from their language, their culture, their family, in many cases that have been lost to the child welfare system. And in many cases, I mean, this is a life or death situation for children, and it's all also just as painful for families. Uh, you know, some of us who are parents can only imagine the, the, the trauma of losing uh, contact with your children, sometimes forever, uh, losing children to child welfare systems that have done, in many cases, a worse job protecting your child. And so this is going to, I think, change the trajectory for children and families in this country in ways that we can imagine and in ways that we can't. And, you know, that's what the communities talk about at the coordination agreements. They talk about the great of what's happened through a colonial system that used family disruption as a way to undermine and, and indeed weaken Indigenous communities. But they also talk about the hope and the aspirations of stronger outcomes for children who are connected to their communities and their, and their extended families. Uh, the Quebec government challenged this uh, all the way to the Supreme Court, not because it disagreed with the objectives of looking after these kids better, but because it argued it would infringe on provincial jurisdiction and, and essentially recognize Indigenous peoples as a third order of government. Now, the court said the law doesn't do that, but what are your thoughts on whether or not Indigenous peoples should be recognized as a third order of government? Well, you know, listen, there are a number of self-government agreements across this country. Indeed, some First Nations have very sophisticated self-governing um, uh, uh, law and agreements that uh, have, they've drawn on and, and, and that, they have, that they utilize and work very closely with provinces and territories that understand how valuable it is to have uh, independent First Nations, independent communities that can make decisions, that can enforce their own bylaws, that can determine for them themselves, uh, their futures. I think that this decision today really sets us up nicely on that path of reconciliation in a number of spaces where First Nations people want more autonomy, Indigenous people want more autonomy, like healthcare. And you know this government has been working with Indigenous partners to conceptualize what self-determination and the provision of healthcare might look like. Uh, I think that uh, we have a new path forward with this ruling. Autonomy is one thing, the resources and the capacity to exercise that autonomy is another. So, so what is the federal government uh, prepared to do on this point to help other Indigenous governing bodies implement uh, this kind of a child system? Whenever a community or a First Nation, a Métis, Inuit community wants to trigger uh, these rights under C-92, it begins a conversation with the federal government, and often the federal government does provide uh, appropriate levels of funding for the technical work that has to happen if a community is financially strapped. We understand that communities often don't have the financial resources for additional legal work for the kinds of coordination that needs to go into place to get a community ready to resume their inherent rights. And so that work begins the minute that someone notifies uh, Indigenous Services Canada of their interests. And then uh, becomes and then it becomes a conversation about how we set communities up for success. So each coordinated agreement also includes a fiscal commitment that's uh, usually 10 years in length so that communities have the runway to be able to plan appropriately, to be able to hire appropriately, and to have that 
fiscal comfort, that financial comfort that they're going to have the, uh, the financial resources in place to do so. And by the way, we work in pro- with provinces and territories on this. And provinces and territories are right. They do have a jurisdictional responsibility to provide child and family services. And, and, and the money that they spend in that space is augmented by, for example, federal social transfers. And so we work very closely with provinces and territories so that they can come to the table with financial resources. This is a win-win, by the way, whether it's a child in Manitoba, Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, when we have kids that are connected to language, culture, and their families, actually kids do way better, and that means uh, more functional adults who are reaching their full potential and a less, uh, less of a burden on the many social services that are required for people that are traumatized. Patty Haidu, Minister of Indigenous Services, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, David. Both Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Conservative leader Pierre Polyev welcomed this ruling. Make sure that kids stay in their communities and are given the supports and safety they need is really important. And this means now we can continue to work with all provinces and territories as we move forward on making sure Indigenous communities, First Nations, Métis and Inuit get to take care of their own kids and give them the brightest possible future. We believe in more autonomy uh, for First Nations communities and less Uh, paternalistic control by government. That includes in raising children. Uh, We're the only party that believes in parental rights uh, and we're going, and we uh, apply that across all Canadians. The Assembly of First Nations co-drafted the Act and they represent more than 600 First Nation communities in Canada. AFN National Chief Cindy Woodhouse-Niepenak joins me now. National Chief, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Child welfare uh, was one of your top priorities when you took on this job. So, so how do you feel about this court decision today? Well, I feel like it's a progressive step forward. I'm thankful to the Supreme Court for recognizing that First Nations, first of all, we never gave up our rights to begin with, but that, that it's recognized and that it's endorsed, that, uh, you know, that, that we can't be trampled on by little governments, I'll say, by the provinces, and that we don't have to wait for a willing provincial partner to exercise our inherent rights. The the decision recognizes that First Nations have the right to self-government and and jurisdiction over children in in, in particular. Why is that so important? Oh, it's absolutely important. It's, uh, you know, it's always been about our children, right, from residential schools to day schools to the 60s school. Now we have this broken child welfare system, and that's because First Nations didn't have the the rights to our children they they've always we've always had colonial rule on us and i think this gives back uh, jurisdiction uh, back to first nations people and we welcome all levels of government in this country to come back and speak to first nations in fact you know we call for a first minister's meeting and, and ask the prime minister to bring it uh you know bring us all together in a good way to, to start talking about uh you know that it's a new you know it's a, it's a new day today mm. and you know, I think that First Nations are feeling optimistic for the future in that. We have a lot of work to do together, but we need to work with all levels of government as well. We know that. They are our treaty partners. Uh, you know, I'm here in BC. Uh, I see progress of, uh, for instance, Premier Eby and, and the Lands Act here. Uh, you know, progress with Wab Canoe and our first First Nations Premier in Manitoba. Of course, we see the Conservative yesterday announcing policies on uh, economic pieces and and uh, you know and of course there's uh, you know there's just there's just so much work to do so it's time for the feds to 
keep it going with the federal budget in March. I know that they've right. done a lot of work already. And I just think bringing us all together, of course, making sure that we're not left out of the federal budget next month, but making also making sure that perhaps we have a first minister's meeting and we bring everybody together to talk about how we work together in a respectful and good way. So uh, on this particular case, uh, the Quebec government opposed this law, and they argued that they did that because it infringes on provincial jurisdiction and rec- recognizes Indigenous peoples as a, as a third order of government. Now, the Supreme Court didn't agree with that, said the law did not, in fact, create this. But I wonder, do you believe Indigenous peoples should be recognized as, as a third order of government going forward? I think that we should be recognized as the first order of government, and I think that we've been here long before Canada existed as a country we've been here as good treaty partners as good relationship partners we're always trying you know our people are always at the front lines trying to work to make this relationship work and we call the provinces and the federal government to work with us in a good way we also call on all canadians and we think uh you know the allies that we have in this country right across this country and uh, you know we just we're optimistic that we can find a new way forward in this country so, so you talked about not being left out of the budget. You talked about maybe having a first minister's meeting uh, to focus specifically on your issues uh, that, that, that you've raised and are raised by this case. What do you need to see from the federal government on this specifically to implement the, the, the outcome of this decision on the ground in communities and, and for, for the children who may need care? Oh, absolutely. I think, number one, respecting First Nations uh, laws. I think there's over 90... First Nations that have been working, 90 plus First Nations that are working on their own laws when it comes to their children and care and recognizing their laws and respecting these people, going to the table with them in a good way to find the path forward to make sure that uh, they're not left out of, of things and to make sure that the federal government doesn't get a, its fiduciary uh, responsibility as well to make sure that investments are made to First Nations people and there's just so much work to do and I think today's a good day, a good day to start. It, it, just as a final point, if the federal government can recognize self-government rights in law without amending the Constitution, which is where we are with, with this today, what doors do you see this opening uh, for First Nations? Oh, there's so many opportunities. And I just have to say, you know, First Nations are ready to get to work. They're ready to, uh, you know, we, we have the tools and the solutions and, and the opportunities and you know the discussion points let's get back to the table first nations are waiting they've been waiting for a long time to have these discussions and i think that it's time that we we have that in this country and i know that conversations are not always going to be easy but they're necessary not talking uh, produces nothing and so we just look forward to um, speaking to the canada and of course to the provinces and the territories and our First Nations have been waiting a long time. And I think that, uh, you know, they, they, we've governed ourselves for thousands of years before Canada was a country. And I think that we have, we have a lot to offer. Okay. AFN National Chief Cindy Woodhouse-Nipanak, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Well, more Ontarians could be getting a family doctor as the province signed a $3.1 billion deal with the federal government to help the province hire more health care workers. This new funding will bolster the significant work we're doing in Ontario to connect more people to convenient care close to home. This agreement will deliver 
real results. It's a transformative investment that will deliver real improvements and protect our health care system now and into the future. Ontario is the fifth province to sign a health care deal with the federal government. Alberta, British Columbia, Nova Scotia and PEI have already signed their own individual deals. I'm joined now by the president of the Ontario Medical Association, Dr. Andrew Park, to talk about what this funding could mean in the hospitals and on the ground. Dr. Park, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, so the Prime Minister said today this deal will deliver real results. I don't want to cast doubt on the Prime Minister, but we hear that every time there's more money for health care. What, what do you think the impact of this will be? Well, the hope is that the impact certainly is, is at a foundational level, particularly around primary care, mental health care. Um, primary care in, in particular is a foundation of our system, and that's been crumbling for a very long time. And I agree with you. We've heard promises like we want this to make a foundational difference over decades. Um, but with, with our aging population, this has to be a priority right now. So where do you want to see this money go, right? Primary care, I know there's a talk of like a teams-based approach to, to family medicine. That's the, the clinic I go to. That's how that operates. I, I mean, what do you want the people of Ontario and patients to see in terms of uh, an actual tangible difference? Yeah, we have a lot of different models of provision of care for primary care in Ontario. And what we need to see is that they all have access to various team members so that if you're going to your doctor for something that, uh, doesn't need to be seen by a doctor, but can be better served by a dietitian, a pharmacist, mm-hmm. a physiotherapist, that that's where the care that you receive in, in your community. Uh, we're having patients travel two, three hours to see their family doctors because they know that they can't get another family doctor if they give one up, and that's that's inappropriate. Right, so is that a structure issue or is that just a supply issue, right? Because there's money and there's need and there's motivation but there doesn't seem to be enough doctors, enough specialists. Like, how, how do you get around that challenge with this? So, so I'd say it's a little bit of both. I, I think the big thing is that you have to figure out where you have the most capacity. If you have the most capacity within the system that currently exists, you have to make sure that you're, you're making the most use out of, that, out of that system. We have to ensure that our family doctors are well supported. We have to make sure that our specialists are also well supported with teams so that they're able to do the things that they're best trained to do instead of uh, recent reports that 19 hours of our family doctor's time is consumed by paperwork. Uh, that, that doesn't allow a lot of bandwidth for actual patient care, which is what we all signed up to do from a healthcare perspective. So, for example, using this money to what hire administrative support, for example, to handle some of that can free up medical capacity. It doesn't necessarily have to be more doctors, but just more time for doctors as a way of alleviating the problem. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, I think that's one way of looking at it from from the from the task that the physician does. Uh, we want to ensure that we're best able to you know make diagnosis, create treatment plans, uh, not be staring at computers. Uh, especially your family doctor. There's some skepticism out there, though. Uh, doctor, the Ontario Nurses Association says they have no faith uh, that these funds will go where they are needed. Do you share their concern? Uh, look, I, I, as I said, like th- this has been a it, this has been decades in the making. So I understand their frustration. I understand their concern, um, and, and I think that that's why we have to hold our elected politicians to task about where this money is going and how it actually makes impacts to ground level workers as well as the patients. We have in Ontario 2.3 million patients with a family doctor. Um, we've had recent uh, funding announcement of 110 million dollars uh, to capture 300,000 of those patients, and that's fantastic. We need to continue advocating for those two million that don't 
don't because we know their health outcomes will be worse. So, so I, I understand their frustration and on some level I share, but I am optimistic about what this means and, and I'll continue to advocate for patients in Ontario. Okay, so they're skeptical, you're optimistic. How does this money need to be spent uh, uh, you know, to, to, to ease their skepticism and, and to be effective as obviously nurses and doctors would like it to be? Yeah, I think it has to show real results. Um, you know, people say, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be more optimistic when I see those results. I'll have more faith or I'll be more aligned when I see those results. So I think the first thing is it has to be deployed in a way that actually shows results. It has to demonstrate more attachment of people uh, across the province to family medicine, uh, family doctors and their teams, um, uh, building out those teams in order to do it, uh, easing the administrative burden that physicians face, uh, addressing some of the, the core infrastructure needs of family doctors is going to go a long way in uh, allowing family doctors to be doctors and absorb some of those patients that are, are, are without a family doctor. Well, well, part of the solution, obviously, for more family doctors is more family doctors, right? And as part of this deal, Ontario must open another 700 spots in medical education programs. And, and the, uh, the province says it will make it easier for Canadian and internationally trained health professionals to practice. I mean, do you, have a, 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 do you see that having a, a tangible effect uh, on staffing here in Ontario? The short answer is yes. The longer answer is that uh, this is not a problem that we're going to hire or train our way out of. Mm. We have to be really creative about the workforce that we have. And again, make family medicine a sustainable sustainable profession. But absolutely, we have to continue to keep up with our population curve and the complexity of needs of our patients in, in how we hire and recruit and, and uh and retain our physicians as well, because it doesn't matter how many spots we have for family medicine or, or surgical specialties or specialties if no one's going into them or if they, if they train in them and then don't practice them, which is what we're seeing with family medicine. Right. So earlier this week, we saw some Ontario healthcare workers and union leaders. They held a demonstration saying they're at their wits end due to the ongoing uh, hospital staffing crisis, um, a sentiment I, I suspect you understand. I mean, how can this funding deal with that in the short term because a lot of the things you're talking about there they're going to take a bit of time i think to work through the system right to 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 clear some of this up so how does this help deal with the frustration that exists in the system right now yeah so i'm I'm an emergency physician so i know those pressures all too well and um um, you know, I was speaking with the premier today and he's very invested in saying, how do we decrease the wait times in emergency departments? How do we ensure that people are going to the appropriate places to seek care when they need it and where they need it? Um, and, and that is something that the reality is when patients don't have options, they're going to the emergency departments. And I, I understand that sentiment completely. So what we have to do is ensure from both the acute care sector as well as the community sector that this this is create, giving patients options so that they're alleviating the pressures on, on, the, uh, on the acute care sector as well. Right. So how quickly, I, just as a final point, Dr. Park, how quickly do you think we can uh, see this, this deal took a year to get to? start seeing a difference being made? Like, well, what's the timeline when you think we'll, we'll feel this in, in Ontario? Yeah, I'm hopeful within the next 12 months. I, I realize that's not tomorrow and that's mm. disheartening for a lot of people. But I think in order to shore up that, that community base uh, and, and start really uh, getting those patients attached quickly, I think we're looking at the next 6 to 12 months and that's something that we're going to be following very closely. Okay. Dr. Andrew Park, President of the Ontario Medical Association, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. The Prime Minister had some harsh words for Bell Media's parent company after it announced broad cuts to news outlets and journalism jobs right across the country. This is a garbage decision by a corporation that should know better.
This is the erosion not just of journalism, of quality local journalism at a time where people need it more than ever given misinformation and disinformation, but it's eroding our very democracy. So yeah, I'm pretty pissed off about what's just happened. So what is at risk? What cuts the local and national television news and the sell-off of dozens of regional radio stations? So it's up next for the Friday Journalist Power Panel. Nigan Sinclair is a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press. The CBC's Jason Markasoff joins us from Calgary. And here with me in Ottawa, journalist and author Paul Wells and editorial writer for Le Devoir, Marie Vestel. Uh, Nigan, uh, I know Winnipeg uh, was affected by these cuts. We saw the Prime Minister today. We saw Premier David Eby speak about the crapification of local news uh, by Bell Media in this. What do you make uh, of this response uh, from the Prime Minister? Uh, well, from the Prime Minister, I mean, uh, he's. what other reaction does he have? Uh, the bottom line is that the Bell Media promised by buying all of these different news channels across the country that they would extend programming and provide local content. Uh, they're reversing that completely by stepping back on that. I mean, in Winnipeg alone... Uh, there's now there's no more noon hour news. There's no more 6 p.m. news. There's no more 11 p.m. news. And that means the gutting almost completely of the newsroom if, uh, in Winnipeg of for anyone provided from Bell Media. And th- what it means is, is that we have less people telling stories, not just about Winnipeg. I mean, there are reporters in Winnipeg from other news channels. We're talking about most of Manitoba now will not be covered. Uh, by a significant portion of the journalist community. And we're not even just talking about, imagine what the North looks like now. Imagine Mm. what pretty much uh, anywhere outside of major urban centers look like. Uh, This is a massive impact on journalism in Canada after promises and approvals that have been given to Bell Media to extend their programming. And now what they're saying is it's unprofitable. The real question is, is why are the, the the management of Bell Media, who are making millions of dollars... Um, if they're losing so much money, then why are, are no management being affected by this? I didn't see any salary decreases for them. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't speak to their compensation, but there were big dividends given out uh, to shareholders. And Marie, you know, we've seen 6,100 jobs gone from mm-hmm. Bell Media since June, 4,800 yesterday, 1,300 uh, earlier. We know some of the people lost their jobs. Yeah. There's the TVR cuts. There's the cuts at Post Media. Uh, there's the looming job cuts here at the CBC that we're going to find out uh, later this year. Um, but, you know, we heard the Heritage Minister talk about all the relief that Bell Media was given. We heard about their frustration that the CRTC and competition all allowed these acquisitions to happen happen with promises that are now being broken. What should the government and the regulators be doing here when it's clear they don't think Bell and others have lived up to their end of the bargain? It, 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 it's a bit late now to say what they could do. Uh, I, I think they're kind of stuck with the decision that has been made. Maybe next time when there is a proposal to centralize news even more in Canada, there's a better reflection about what it'll look like a few years down the road once those promises are made and not necessarily kept. Um, I feel like broadcast news, TV, radio is where we were, newspapers, uh, 10 years ago. Audiences mm. are changing. The, the the business model just isn't working. You Broadcast and news, print news can't reach audiences anymore. And there's this... Th- there's this uh, unclarity, for lack of a better word, about what the solution is. I don't think that the solution is to have never-ending higher, higher, higher tax credits. Um, At some point, another government will come in and probably cut those tax credits. So it seems like the whole industry needs to figure out 
how to make money and be sustainable. I don't know how to do that. Um, but it seems like we're at a point where government might have done a lot of what it can do short of, you know, higher tax credits, which I don't think are right. the solution. But to go back to your question to Nigan and, and, and local news, um, this is not to build on what the prime minister was saying, but, but it is a problem for democracy. Local news are the ones who found out that the Quebec police were mistreating and not taking indigenous women's concerns seriously in Val d'Or, in mm -hmm, northern mm -hmm, Quebec. Mm -hmm. uh, local news is who see corruption before other people don't. Local news was documented after the Trump election in 2016 as, as the, I guess, the lack of quality local news uh, disenfranchised electors, voters, who then rejected government and rejected D.C. and the capital and, and politicians that seem to represent it. There is an impact to this where yeah. we won't find out a lot of stuff, where there is a risk of disenfranchisement, I don't know if you can say that in English, of voters and, yeah, and yeah. Canadians, thank you. Uh, and, and so this is something to take seriously, and these corporations clearly do not at all take it seriously. Right. So, Paul, uh, the fat cats at Paul Wells Inc. or Limited Liability Corporation that run your Substack have found a way to make this work. Yeah. Um, but, like, that is a very specific circumstance. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not a model for the whole industry, necessarily. Yeah. I'm doing well, and I think I'm doing well because I'm providing uh, interesting yeah. journalism. Uh, but it's not, a, it's not a model that you can scale e right. easily. But apparently neither is the one in place. Uh, um, uh, you know, basically what we saw the prime minister today, and I believe he, I believe he's sincere in his frustration. Um, the, the suite of policies that they've laid out over the last several years don't seem to be working. Mm. And so, uh, you get mad at, uh, decisions of private companies, which he has a right to be mad at decisions of private companies, but that's hard to get a, a handle on. Mm -hmm. Um, meanwhile, Village Media, uh, uh, uh company in Ontario opened Jeff two LG's new, company. uh, yeah. Jeff LG just opened two new, uh, outlets in two, uh, I can't even remember the names of the towns where he's opening reasonably ambitious local online news, um, uh, outlets. So there, there are models that do seem to work and that are, I think would be kind of universally recognized as serious journalism. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah no question. But uh, I think it is time. I mean, Prime Minister's mad at Bell today, but he could have been mad at Rogers before, or at TVA or at, uh, yeah, you know. And um, it, it's starting to look like a system failure. Um, I, there's, there's, there's two ways forward. One is to very substantially increase the amount of aid that they contemplate. And the other is to wonder whether they're barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, and, and look, uh, they could be mad at the CBC as well, uh, and they, they, are. they are. We, we <laughs> saw that, you know, we certainly saw <laughs> that in the last couple of weeks. Sure. Yeah, but, but so Jason, on that, like, you know, you see a lot of people who are champions of journalism, and I know we both work for the public broadcaster, so, you know, full disclosure, you're watching the CBC, you know the conflict. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of people say, well, this means you just have to increase the funding and the reach and the role of the public broadcaster, and that is also a challenge, right? Because you can't have all of your journalism coming from yeah, absolutely a government-funded news organization. You need a good, broad array of private, public, mixed, or whatever to sort of keep each other in check, right? And, and it's all starting to disappear on one side, and Lord knows where it's going to go on our side. It's... I yeah, this is a very yeah. Actually, I was very depressed yesterday, even though no, yeah. you know my corporation wasn't uh, impacted. You know, as you said, we were all waiting for those uh, you know swing blades uh, hanging above our heads to uh, finally um, come down on us, and that's a very familiar uh, situation for me. I've I worked at the news. Newspapers and post media. I worked at McLean's Magazine, uh, <laughs> where I was the last um, the last person working outside of uh, outside of Ontario. 
Mm. Um, and that doesn't, that's not a thing that they do uh, there anymore. Um, it's, it's very challenging. Um, yeah, if, if this would be a bad country uh, for information if CBC was the only shop in town. Yeah. Um, and uh, it would be a bad country if there was no CBC, given uh, the stature of CBC and relative health of CBC compared to uh, the private broadcasters who don't benefit from the, uh, from the large government subsidy that this uh, organization gets. Um, it was really striking how some language from uh, Bell executives that they're just, they're kind of throwing in the towel on the viability of uh, traditional broadcast news. Um, and Trudeau's comments um, didn't seem to hint to anything. I mean, he has, um, you know, on at times will play their kind of role of a motor in chief, trying to uh, reflect people's frustrations uh, using terms like garbage decision, which I don't know if a lot of people would disagree with. Um, but uh, when you're the prime minister when you're the government who's been in power for coming on, was it nine years now, um, the garbage decisions and the, uh, you know, being ticked off, uh, you know, you have much more power than just mm -hmm. to be emotive about it. And um, if this has happened under your watch, despite your best efforts, um, you know, the questions have to be, you know, of course, are, what are you going to do about it? And uh, the answer is, well, I guess we wait for them. Yeah. Uh, Nigan. I was uh, CTV, uh, uh, sorry, Bell Media, when they were talking about executives were making the kind of argument, um, they were talking about this massive loss in revenue just in the last three quarters. Uh, that's the exact time in which this whole battle of uh, Bill C-11 and Bill C-18, which is all about bringing uh, regulators or, or big streaming channels onto uh, the Canadian network and making them pay. And then, of course, the issue around Facebook and the control of media on Facebook. Uh, they were trying to divert that blame by saying that the government took too long to be able to deal with that, and this was the outcome. Um, I think that's a rather poor argument. It tells you that, that perhaps they were waiting for some kind of golden egg to fall from the sky. But the reality is that the government does have a role to play and certainly in a, some blame on this because uh, the amount of time and the battle with Facebook just alone resulted in the gutting of advertising re revenue to the tune of over $130 million for Bell Media. So they were able to make that argument of these massive cuts over the past six months of 6,000 jobs because of the government's role within this. So uh, the, the Prime Minister can call this a garbage decision, but there may be some blame at his own feet, uh, particularly in the ways in which the slowness that that happened. Yeah, I, I don't know if, if, if the delay on, on the legislation cost them $130 million in, in advertising sales drops. That could be any number of, of factors that go into that. But I, I think the point, Marie, is that what the government set out to do under Pablo Rodriguez and later Pascal Sanange didn't, didn't work live so up well. to what they wanted it to yeah. be. And certainly the broadcasters, with the cap on what they were able to get, and the CBC, I don't think it's what the corporate executives of the broadcasters were hoping to get mm -hmm. uh, out of this entire thing. And it left them with a situation where looking to tech to save the, the, the bottom line didn't live up to the expectation and has maybe left the government gun-shy about doing something else. Well... Perhaps, because the last time it didn't mm -hmm. work so well. It almost backfired, um, yeah. really. Some media organizations are now questioning whether C-18 was a good idea because it just um, kind of put Facebook's or Meta's yeah. wall uh, me back against you the wall. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then there's no money instead of being more money. Uh, so perhaps that is making them hesitant about what to do next, uh, um, or they don't really see that many options. But to Nigan's point, it's true that the prime minister maybe lacked 
a tiny bit of introspection <laughs> into the situation we're in today because they have never really admitted that C-18 didn't really work out to what they had promised or hoped at least um, it would be. And in the, those negotiations with Meta, I don't know if there was that much give and take from the government. I think they had this objective in mind and they mm. stuck to it and perhaps by conviction, um, but maybe that negotiation didn't go as fruitfully as it could have. So, Paul, what's your sense? I, I mean, they're obviously frustrated with the outcome. Um, yeah. They say they're champions of media. Um, they're probably, they probably truly are. Uh, but what they've tried to do has not delivered the outcome. So do they try something new, or do you think they're just kind of throw up their hands and, and because of their inability to just sort of maybe solve what might be an unsolvable problem? So even people who are pretty allergic to uh, government intervention in, in, in this area mm. uh, make an exception for more generous tax credits for subscriptions. Sure. Uh, and, um, and, and perhaps for donations to what would, what would essentially be quasi-independent journalism foundations that, uh, that could disperse grants to organizations. You know? So there, there, are, there are levers that um, could be contemplated. Mm. But it's... The woods are on fire out there. Like, like, like it, the, the industry is collapsing far faster than anyone can keep up with it. And it's not bad things that Bell did or that the government of Canada has done. National Geographic is no longer a magazine. Popular Science is no longer a magazine. Pitchfork is, they fired the bosses and they're going to put it in GQ, which makes no sense. I mean, the, 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 the media landscape that we were familiar with even five years ago is just, is, is just non-functional. Mm-hmm. And I think um, certainly... Propping up legacy organizations doesn't work because the the industry is in quick mutation and new models have to be, new models can't be penalized as we try and make Bell Media work. That makes no yeah. sense to me. But the new models, Paul, like they don't cover City Hall necessarily. They don't, you know, they don't do that sort of traditional function that your local newspaper, or local station, you know what I mean? That, yeah, that, although I, I mean, I, golly, I wish I just signed up this week to Robert Hills' uh, newsletter in Ottawa, which, mm. uh, which covers uh, City Hall better than... Some long-standing news organizations like your name, but you have to admit that those structures. But you have to admit that those structures are. Some of them are one person or two people. It's not a full bureau. It's not as many resources. It's not the money to then take your car or the plane to go cover something else. Those models work, but it's a very niche. Um, production of news and audience. You need both. I, that's what I'm Fine, I, but, uh, but I'm, unless, not, I'm not unless, crapping fine, on your model, absolutely. but you need both. Unless you're going to quintuple the kind of money that yeah, the yeah, feds have already yeah. put into it, then you're not playing. No, right? you need to change the structure, yeah, as yeah. you're saying. You need to figure out yeah, a, a, a functioning financial structure. Okay, I'm over time, but you got the last one. can also not have million-dollar CEOs who are taking out most of the resources that are being put in. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> we'll, we'll end it there. A uh, great way to end uh, the weekend. It's Friday, so I'm going to need a drink after this one. But thank you so much. Paul Wells, Marie Vestel, Nigan Sinclair, and Jason Markasov. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.